Antibiotics. They literally changed the world. Or at least, how long were they there for? Since their discovery, treatment of potentially killer bacteria strains like E. coli, tuberculosis and pneumonia has been revolutionized. We use it for infections. We use it for surgery. It's essential in modern medicine. But what happens when these drugs fail to kill the bacteria? What happens when the bacteria learns how to fight back? My name is Ryan McBride and today I'm going to talk about the alarming rise in antibiotics resistance. Antibiotics are almost a way of life for many. Anytime you go to the doctor you expect to be prescribed with some exotic tablet ending in IN. Taken for granted? Maybe. We rely heavily on them which makes it even more considerable that such a powerful discovery came to us almost completely by accident. Time to boot up your imaginary time machine and head to late September 1928. America is suffering the after effects of a huge hurricane, particularly in Puerto Rico. Duke Ellington and his Cotton Club Orchestra were about to wow audiences with digga digga do. Scottish scientist Alexander Fleming looks at the state he left his lab in after he and his family come home from their month-long holiday to Scotland. He finds glass plates which he had coated with Staphylococcus bacteria as part of research he was conducting on the flu. But he notices something odd. One of the plates had mould on it. The mould was in the shape of a ring and the area around that ring seemed to be free of the bacteria. That mould was Penicillin notatum, which would later become refined to penicillin, the very first antibiotic to be discovered. And with that stroke of luck came a cure for millions of ailments. It was isolated and purified. It was mass-produced. Soldiers who took part in the D-Day landings were able to be treated more effectively. He wins the Nobel Prize in Medicine in 1945. Who'd have thunk Alexander Fleming would be remembered better than poor old Duke Ellington? Fast forward 90 years. It's 2017. America is suffering the after effects of a huge hurricane, particularly Puerto Rico. Despacito is dominated in the airwaves. And we're still relying on these drugs. But here's the kicker. These drugs... They're failing. So-called superbugs like MRSA are making people seriously ill, and they're seemingly well on the way to outsmarting our current antibiotics. 10 million people are projected to die from antibiotics resistance, according to a UK study published in 2016. But what is this killer? Here's Dr. John O'Kelly, the chair of Royal College of GPs Northern Ireland. Yeah, I think you've got to go back as to when antibiotics were first developed. So they were developed uh, in post-war 1950s. And at that time, if you go back to that generation, people were becoming seriously ill and dying from bacterial infections. Think of tuberculosis, diphtheria, whooping cough, polio. These caused people to die. Now, at that stage, antibiotics were developed and that with vaccines completely changed the game and caused uh, uh, doctors to be able to tackle a lot of these conditions that kill people. Over the years, uh, we have all um, expected antibiotics 
to do their job. And I suppose there's been a little bit of complacency. And we are now uh, reaping the whirlwind from this complacency in seeing increasing uh, resistance to these drugs. So who is the onus on? We all have a responsibility here to tackle this problem. So it is the public, it is health professionals, and it is it's governments, and it is uh, the pharmaceutical industry. John says that we need to see the bigger picture. This is just not a problem of the United Kingdom or Ireland or Europe. This is a global problem and it needs a global solution. We also have a lot of antibiotics used in areas outside of medicine. Uh, They are heavily used in agriculture and in farming. And there is, I suppose, an argument to say that drugs that are medically important for human beings should be banned in, in, in agriculture. But large amounts of these drugs have been used in other fields rather than treating uh, human beings. They're used to promote um, growth and reduce infections in in, in animals, so to give them a better yield. Uh, So there is a good financial reason for the farming industry to use these drugs. I did a bit of my own research on the matter, and I wasn't really expecting what I found. So Mestibits put antibiotic use in farming at 80% of all antibiotic use in the United States. Part of the reason for this high figure is the one health system. So rather than one chicken being treated, you treat every chicken in the barn. And this goes for cows and sheep and every other animal. I don't mind saying I was quite shocked by the finding, partly because I'm living a sheltered life in the European Union where such practices are banned in most cases. Well, it's always difficult to give a precise measure, but it's easily equal to and almost certainly greater than the human usage. That was Professor Elizabeth Wellington from Warwick University in England. I contacted her to try and understand the extent of the antibiotics use in agriculture. Elizabeth is one of the leading lights when it comes to researching antibiotics resistance. So, apart from being outnumbered by animals, why else would agricultural use of antibiotics lead to growing resistance? With farms, there's a much more intimate connection to the environment, so that is also impacted, as well as through the food chain, which is a very significant route to humans, and through farm workers and farm personnel. So what kind of antibiotics are animals being given compared to the human batch? There are often pharmaceuticals that are marketed under um, a veterinary um, registration name, which would indicate a different compound. But actually, if you look at the structure, they're very similar to human ones. There are many that are actually the same. So as Elizabeth said, drugs that were intended to be used on humans are also being used on animals. And as well as that, some of the drugs that are different aren't all that varied. It could only be a slight difference. Um, Then on on top of that, you've got the point of co-selection. So if if you're using, uh, say, for example, pigs are given menensin or tylosin to help with uh, gastroenteritis or some kind of infection that they might have. And these are a type of antibiotic which it, it selects for resistance similar to the resistance you get to erythromycin. So actually, you will be selecting for erythromycin resistance. 
because it's it's a similar class of of antibiotic. So it's very difficult to distinguish. It, it's there's a lot of overlap. Have a think about that. The bacteria has the common sense to learn resistance to one thing based on a similar thing it's seen before. Like, imagine a man in a trench coat and a fake moustache trying to get a free sample from a supermarket after getting one already. Now, a lot of these problems with the agricultural use of antibiotics, they can be avoided within the European Union. But our closest neighbours, the United Kingdom, have decided to pull out of the EU. Much of the desire behind that shock decision was the desire to deregulate many parts of the country and cut away a lot of the red tape. So, will Brexit affect antibiotics resistance? I think that it will almost certainly adopt the same regulations as as Europe. I think, you know, that they're trying to copy the same legislation so that that it's uh, virtually identical to if we hadn't um, left. So that that seems to be the case in other areas. So I I don't see any reason for it to be different in this. So the regulations are banning the use of antibiotics for growth promotion. and, And I'm certain that we will stay with that. Um, then there is um, a requirement to use antibiotics if the animal is infected on welfare grounds. So there will always be some use of antibiotic. The question is how much? Of course, Brexit means expanding their trade routes to countries outside the European Union like China and India. So even if the United Kingdom retains the European Union-style agricultural regulations, is trading with countries less regulated a concern? We, we might have more food coming in from those countries, so there's a food chain issue. Uh, they have mu- much more in, in sort of unregulated consumption of, of antibiotics, both in agriculture and in, um, in the community, in human medicine. So um, the concerns are that already there are routes of entry into the food chain from countries that have more intensive use of antibiotics for controlling infections. So this is a cause for concern, definitely. Elizabeth and her team in Warwick made another discovery that could be pivotal in the fight against antimicrobial resistance. What happens is that there are other compounds which have generally have been used in association with antibiotics. So in a hospital, the bacteria are often exposed to an antibiotic in an infection um, but they're also exposed while they're sort of hanging around in the environment they're exposed to biocides which are disinfectants. Lots of these compounds are just chilling in the atmosphere so the infectious bacteria could come into contact with something similar to these antibiotics before you've even been given the medicine. Biocides are used a lot, they're like detergents and chemically um, form a group of compounds often referred to as quaternary ammonium compounds, quacks. And these compounds are found also in water softening products, in detergent products, in um, various uh, hair shampoos and household reagents. So they go into the sewer and through into the sewage works uh, where they accumulate. And so we found that there was a, an accumulation of uh, genes which carried resistance to quacks. So these biocide-resistant 
genes, they were co-located on the DNA with antibiotic resistance. So essentially, Elizabeth has proven that contact with household products like shampoos and detergents could be training infectious bacteria in your body to recognize and develop resistance to compounds that are quite similar to antibiotics before you even go near a hospital. It seemed that if you were selecting for... As in with natural selection. ...resistance to a quack, you were also selecting antibiotic resistance, and they came together. So it's often referred to as co-selection, and we were able to show that that in environments where there were high levels of, of these biocides, such as the sewage works, in pig rearing, in a polluted environment where there was industrial effluent, there was a highly increased number of these resistance genes to biocides. But they were nearly always on a mobile genetic element. And it is this that is the vehicle by which bacteria can acquire resistance so readily because they have these like jumping genes as it were. Bacteria have bits of DNA called integrants or jumping genes as they're sometimes referred to which can move in and out of chromosomes and other elements. You might think of an integrant as like a landing strip, a specific location on a stretch of bacterial DNA where foreign DNA can rapidly be pasted onto the site. The integrant had had on it a conserved gene which was a quack resistance and then downstream from that were antibiotic resistance genes so there there was um, co-selection going on so even if you eliminate antibiotics from from the environment uh, selection can still carry on with the biocides which, which are in quite high levels and they're also used in the dairy industry to wash machinery milking machinery they're used as disinfection on the farm and um, and so they go into runoff and end up in the rivers and you see this sort of uh, sometimes foaming occurring in rivers that indicates uh, build up of detergent. So even without antibiotics present we're using products that have similar enough molecules for them to be recognized by bacteria and with these bacteria being so close to the food chain being on dairy farms and piggeries like Elizabeth said there's a chance of them ending up in your gut. And even when you forget about the whole industrial side, it's alarming that bacteria can find ways to gain resistance to medicine just by exposure to these everyday items. So can we do anything to stave off this problem? Yeah, I think that, that it, it would be a good thing to, to look at alternatives that don't select for these efflux pumps. These are pumps that pump out the compound. And um, I think it's it's feasible that we could find alternatives and really just avoiding quacks probably altogether and there are i think there's some hand washes that you can get in hospitals that don't have them in so uh, it is achievable now i think there are a myriad of ways for farmers to reduce the risk of infections as elizabeth explains here and for some countries useful measures have already been put in place infections are often avoidable as we know with humans and in farming there are often activities like overcrowding that can lead to infection spreading and I think one of the uh, aims of certain countries in Europe such as Scandinavia has been to try and adopt farming practices which reduce the risk of infection I mean you're never going to wipe it out but at least to reduce consumption in, in the same way that 
you know, we're trying to do with the human population is to reduce consumption to protect existing antibiotics that are working, then we've got a better chance of keeping those drugs going for longer, so thereby, you know, reducing exposure. And I think this is certainly for, for farming is going to be a very important decision-making process for farmers. John O'Kelly agrees when it comes to reducing consumption of antibiotics, and he feels that in human cases, general practitioners have a role to play. We need governments to initiate public awareness campaigns to um, educate people about antibiotics, their use when they are of benefit, that not every cough, cold, sore throat requires an antibiotic, and that they should not be expecting uh, an antibiotic every time they they go to the doctor. Simple things that people can do is good hygiene and sanitation. Uh, To prevent the spread of these these bugs is to uh, cover your mouth when coughing, wash hands, simple things like that. Um, So these are things that people can do. From our point of view as as doctors, we need to monitor how we use the drugs and and increasingly uh, this is happening. As, as a doctor, uh, every three months I get uh, a, a report on my uh, prescribing of all my drugs, including antibiotics, and this is uh, looked at um, uh, in comparison with other practices and the trend in Northern Ireland. We have formularies uh, and guidance on how to use these drugs, and that is also uh, looked at um, by um the, the health board to see how we are, are, are comparing with, with others. And so far, in, in Ireland at least, there has been movement on that. I got in touch with Dr. Karen Burns, who recognises that it can be difficult for a doctor to decide the right course of action for a patient. Currently, um, people may present with infection, and um, that infection may be due to a bacteria, in, in which case antibiotics are a particularly valuable intervention, or it could be a viral infection, in which case antibiotics are, are not of use. Uh, it can be kind of difficult uh, when somebody first presents to determine whether their infection is due to a bacteria or to a virus, particularly for infections in the respiratory tract or the chest. However, according to Karen, there is no room for rash decision-making. The HSE have set in place procedures for a reason. I think it's important that we would follow guidelines and there are excellent guidelines for prescribers such as general practitioners through the antibioticprescribing.ie guidelines which have been developed by the Irish College of General Practitioners and they apply to uh, prescribers in the primary care setting Mm. and then within our acute hospitals um, uh, guidelines will be developed by the antibiotic stewardship teams and will be for use by the prescribers at the hospital setting. So um, those guidelines are based on our best guess of what bug is likely to be causing the problem and um, whether or not it is likely to be resistant to antibiotics. Uh, The only way then to determine whether you're on the right treatment is to see obviously A, how the patient is doing and responding to the treatment and hopefully they'll be improving if they're on the right drug for the right bug. Mm. Um, The other thing that can be helpful in certain cases is to take a specimen um, from the affected area. So if somebody presents with a urinary tract infection to get a sample of the urine and test that to see what bug is present and what antibiotics it's susceptible to. Around the world, scientists are hard at work to develop new tools for getting the right drug for the right bug. 
I spoke to Daniel Berman, who heads up the Longitude Prize at Nesta. Nesta is an innovation foundation based in the United Kingdom, but working globally to grow ideas to make the world better. Daniel told me the focus of the Longitude Prize and the antibiotics crisis the world is facing. Our part of this whole picture is diagnostics. So basically today, if you're sent to um, a GP surgery or if you go into hospital, a lot of times the medical staff have to guess whether you have a, a bacterial infection, which, so whether you need antibiotics or not, and which infection or which drugs will work. It's, it's, it's a lot of guesswork. So the Longitude Prize, which is a 10 million pound prize, was launched in 2014. And the idea is to get people all around the world working on a rapid diagnostic test to get the guesswork out of um, uh, prescribing antibiotics. And so in order to, to win, um, uh, the, the actual payout is eight million pounds. To, to win the eight million pounds, you have to develop a, what we call a point of care, so something that would be used in someone's home, in a, a doctor's office, or in a hospital, not um, something that would be used in a lab. So something that is quite easy to use, almost like a pregnant, uh, pregnancy test, um, to uh, basically know whether you have bacterial infection uh, or a viral infection. Because today, in, when people uh, go to their GP surgery, um, something like 70% of people who are going for sore throat are getting prescriptions for antibiotics. Actually, only maybe 20 or 30% of those people actually should be getting antibiotics. Now, if they manage to develop this device, it would be such a useful tool in our arsenal while we're waiting for new drugs to be discovered. And when it comes to incentivizing research and coming up with practical solutions, Nesta are doing such good work. But where does all their funding come from? It, for the most part, this prize, it's a, a, called a challenge prize, um, is uh, a, mostly a winner's take all. So what I mean is that there would, we have a judging panel of experts and we have eight criteria um, in order that you have to meet in order to win the prize. So I'll give you one that's um, uh, very straightforward is from the time you take the test, so that, for the, that you have the drop of blood or um, a sample of urine, you need a result within 30 minutes. So um, the, the idea is that you have to meet these eight criteria. That's an example of one of them. Um, and then you actually win. the. If you meet all eight of them, then you win the eight million pound prize. Um, so you could call it a, a pull. It's the pull of that, um, uh, that prize that gets teams around the world working on this. And we have 250 teams that are currently working about 70 teams um, in the UK, um, about 100 teams um, in, uh, if you include all of, all of Europe, including um, Ireland. Um, and it, we also have um, almost 70 teams in India. We have a very strong partner in India. So people that are working at, uh, on this are, uh, for example, um, groups of researchers that are working in um, uh, university setting let's say in a, maybe a, 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 a medical center uh, affiliated with uh, perhaps a medical school. Um, we have engineers, we have biologists, um, we have many different disciplines 
Um, and we are also offering um, seed grants to these teams um, to support their work. The eventual payout of that £10 million is £8 million. So how do you win it? You have to develop uh, what we call a point of care, so something that would be used in someone's home, in a, a doctor's office, or in a hospital, not um, something that would be used in a lab. So something that is quite easy to use, almost like a pregnant, uh, pregnancy test, um, to uh, basically know whether you have bacterial infection uh, or a viral infection. Because today, in, when people uh, go to their GP surgery, um, something like 70% of people who are going for sore throat are getting prescriptions for antibiotics. Actually, only maybe 20 or 30 percent of those people actually should be getting antibiotics. Say the device is eventually created. Would such a device be affordable? It's one of our eight criteria is the test must be affordable. Now, um, when this prize was designed, we didn't give an exact number of how much each unit would cost. Um, and but. Um, we, we I'll just give you some examples to make it concrete. We couldn't really imagine a device that would, it, let's say if it had a cartridges and a device. Let's say, imagine a handheld device. You put a spot of blood on a cartridge and you stick it into the device. If the device costs 5,000 pounds to buy, then, or, or you know, about 5,000 euros, that would, not, we, that would not win our prize and would not meet our criteria. We need a, a device that would be uh, affordable enough so that it could be um, bought um, by a Ministry of Health. Now, in the poorest countries, there's probably going to be a need to subsidize this test. Um, but if you think of in Ireland, um, uh, this type of test, there would need to be uh, huge volumes. So the price would have to be relatively low, otherwise it wouldn't be feasible. So we're basically talking about each test hopefully being a few euros. And we know that's feasible at very high volumes. Daniel says the aim is to develop a tool similar to the malaria or AIDS test, which will give you a yes or no result. It's enshrined in the rules of the competition. One of the things that you have to do to win the prize is you have to have a test that could be used in developing countries as well. Daniel used the example of Kenya to illustrate his point. In the capital of Kenya, Nairobi, there's a big modern hospital, but most of the people who live in Kenya have mostly access to small um, clinics. And we want this um, test to be used at a village level, at a clinic level. And there's, there's a precedent for this, because today, in terms of diagnosing HIV um, that causes AIDS, uh, the tests are available everywhere. They're, they're very easy to use, and you get a yes or no um, result. Same with malaria. So we know it's possible. So we should have the science. So the problem is... Um, the tricky thing here is that bacterial infections are a bit more difficult to diagnose because it's a, they're diverse. Um, and um, the bugs are changing, um, so that's also a challenge. Um, and the, you could say the science is there, but to simplify it and turn it into a test that looks more like a pregnancy test or a malaria test, it's really, really difficult. And that's why we created um, this prize, the Longitude Prize. Then how close are they to getting the device made? Well... Um, this is a rolling process. So three times a year, the last deadline was the 30th of September, 
um, teams that are already registered can apply to win. And to apply to win, you have to have a business plan. You have to show that you've met the eight criteria, like the 30-minute criteria. Um, and so far, we've reviewed 20 full applications. And to be honest, none have come close to winning. And the deadline is of the last time you can apply is September 2019. So we have about two years left. Um, we can't be 100% sure that someone will win because this is a really difficult challenge, um, but we're optimistic. And um, what we're trying to do at this point is supporting teams to help them to be successful. So there are no guarantees, but with such a clear vision and 250 teams of researchers on it, there's a really good chance these guys could pull it out of the bag. So what if we do everything right? If we cut down on antibiotic use when we can, prescribe it only when needed, and complete all of our courses until the end? Can we undo some of the damage we've already done? Can the bacteria unlearn what they already know about antibiotics? Here's Professor Elizabeth Wellington again. It's not entirely clear, but, but there are projects of research ongoing, and we are doing some as well, and there are many other universities that are engaged in this kind of research. So. It should be possible to get an idea, but you can have selection in any environment and it doesn't take very long for a very resistant bacterium to evolve um, to new drugs. So there's always going to be a, a race against the evolution of the bacteria. But it's not all doom and gloom. The emphasis is on developing new drugs and there are even alternatives to antibiotics, as Elizabeth explains. Yeah, I think that, that developing uh, very new and different uh, targeted drugs against very, very um, diverse targets would, would be, well, an excellent uh, outcome of some of the research that's going on now. In addition, there have been a lot of work on other uh, very um, distinct remedies, such as using... Uh, antibacterial viruses, these bacteriophage, for so phage therapy. That's another possibility. Uh, vaccination is, is, uh, achievable, especially for animals for many infections. Uh, vaccination of chickens against salmonella has been incredibly successful, um, especially in reducing, you know, the, the risk of salmonella in eggs as well. So that you know, there there've been some tremendous steps forward there, and and of course, you know that there's always the um, possibility of of also using probiotics, and probiotics may well have a have a, a major role to play in the future in trying to prevent infections. Boss. There is still an onus on drug companies to develop brand new antibiotics rather than rehashing the old ones. They're not fooling bacteria despite the fact they literally don't have two brain cells to rub together. Many scientists involved in, in working in this area for a long time have seen this coming and and it, it has reached a crisis point But just because there are also no new drugs that, that seem to be available uh, to put in place when we lose the existing drugs to resistance. 
and and this is this is a major worry. So what's left? We've covered doctors, farmers, pharmaceutical companies, and researchers. Who else is the onus on? Who else has a responsibility? How about Joe Public? Let's face it, some people don't take instructions very well. The doctors tell them to finish their course or else the bacteria may not be completely killed. They could evolve and come back bringing even more fire and fury than it did the first time. But they stop early because they feel better. Or they drink alcohol during their course. Or they take more than their allotted dosage in one day to make up for a lost day some other time. If I was the Minister for Health, I would make my patients watch the movie Gremlins before each appointment. Never feed them after midnight. You got it? Here's Dr. Karen Burns again. Compliance is certainly an issue because I guess um, everybody's busy and it can sometimes be hard to remember to take the course as prescribed. It is very important to follow the instructions exactly um, and that people would remember to take it when it's supposed to be taken and to complete out the course. Um, obviously, if we, if we don't take the antibiotic as prescribed or we don't finish the course, then the risk of the course being ineffective is much higher. Um, so compliance is certainly something that anybody who gets an antibiotic needs to be very mindful that they, they, they take it as indicated and directed. And the pharmacist will often you know, be available to provide advice um, on, on when best to take it. And some, some, some things need to be taken with food, other things on an empty stomach. So again, um, taking it right is, is really important. Um, but an antibiotic isn't indicated in all, in all scenarios. And it's um, very important that people understand that they're not the be-all and end-all and there is collateral damage from them and obviously the big collateral damage is the antimicrobial resistance so it's really important that we only take them when they're really indicated. Ask most doctors about it and they'll tell you the same thing. But hold on, could this traditional school of thought be wrong? The Daily Telegraph published an article earlier this year with a headline, Don't Take Full Course of Antibiotics. The British Medical Journal published an article in which 10 leading figures said that following traditional advice of finishing an entire course of antibiotics could actually put the public at greater risk from antimicrobial resistance. Almost a century of what we considered good practice, they say, was not backed by evidence. The lead author was Martin Lewin, Professor of Infectious Diseases at Brighton and Sussex Medical School in England. He told the Daily Telegraph, Historically, antibiotic courses were driven by a fear of undertreatment with less concern about overuse. Professor Alison Holmes told them that it was astonishing that doctors still didn't know the optimum duration for taking the drugs. Now, I asked what Daniel Berman had to say in the findings, and here's what he thought. I think what I can say clearly is it could be a bit dangerous for individual people without medical training um, to just decide how much antibiotic they're going to take. Um, Because in the article, they were basically saying, well, if you've killed the bug, there's no point to taking more antibiotics. That's correct, but it's not so clear. You could have the symptoms go away, and maybe you still had um, active um, that 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 active pathogen, or what we say simply as as the bug. So I think the advice is that it's a bit um, it's an important debate to have in the medical community. But I think what we're saying, and our partners who are in um, uh, you know medical institutions and leading infectious disease um, doctors, are saying really depend on your doctor to tell you how much of the antibiotic you should take. Um, And it actually could cause harm if everyone arbitrarily is taking um, different uh, number of days. So um, yes, there needs to be more research to know what are the best doses and can they be shorter. 
um, but a situation where each person would decide for themselves actually could be a little dangerous for people's health. I must say I agree with Daniel Berman on this one. How is a patient supposed to know that their infection is completely eradicated? I'd prefer to leave that up to the qualified health professionals who see more of these cases come through the doors and go to medical school for years on end. Antimicrobial resistance is not an issue that's going away soon. It's probably an issue that will never go away. But until everyone bands together and does their part to combat it, it's going to continue to get worse until we have no antibiotics left. I don't think that will happen though, because the stakes are this high and there's this many people dedicating their talent to it. It won't be the case for long. Maybe they'll work it into the Gremlins remake when it inevitably comes. Who knows? I'd like to thank everyone who helped me in the course of making this documentary. Thanks to Daniel Berman and everyone at Nesta, Professor Elizabeth Wellington in Warwick University. Thanks to Dr. John O'Kelly and the Royal College of GPs in Northern Ireland, and Dr. Karen Burns from Beaumont Hospital in Dublin. Thanks for listening, and if you like this documentary and want to help other people find it or want to hear more like it yourself, please give a five-star review on iTunes or your Apple podcast app. And if you really enjoyed this documentary, don't forget to share it with your friends.